Good morning, Deborah. Good morning. <laughs> I think Alan's with us and our Brittany. A <laughs> um, couple opening comments. One is that um, we've said all along that what is portrayed as uh, destruction and death, it's really not clear how much of it is a physical thing versus a spiritual thing. Because when we, we read it, it sounds very physical. It's We are imagining things that are like actual warfare and actual famine and destruction. But when we go to the ancient commentary, more often than not, they're talking about, uh, for example, the famine of truth. That um, when waters are poisoned, they talk about heresy. Um, when there's battle, they talk about temptation to um, to transfer our, our, our allegiance to God, to worldly power. So all these kind of things. Um, that's one thing to keep in, in mind as we go back into this. Um, also, remember that where we are in context, this is the seventh seal. And in the set, when the seventh seal begins to be opened, there are seven trumpets. We're now in the sixth trumpet of the seven trumpets of the seventh seal. Okay? So imagine a book that has seven chapters, and in the last chapter, there are seven parts. And we're in part six. Forget the content, forget scripture, just think in terms of story and literature. What kinds of things do you think about when you turn the page and you go, okay, I'm in the last chapter and I'm in part six? The end is coming quickly. Very good. Okay, and we didn't have to look in the scripture for that. That's the kind of thing I want us to remember as we're reading this, we have to remember we're reading it. It's, it's a form, it's a known form. And when you read something, no matter what you're reading, it doesn't matter if it's a recipe book, it doesn't matter if it's a history book, uh, it doesn't matter if it's a poetry book. When you get to part six of the last chapter, you know the end is coming soon, okay? Now in stories, when the end is coming soon, what kinds of things happen? Any story, any, any, any kind of writing. Looks like all the bows are tied. Yeah. Because a story is often a weaving and unweaving of storylines, of personalities, of relationships. But as the story comes close to the end, those things start to resolve. Either some people die, some people are reconciled, battles are waged, and we're not at the end because the end of the story is the end of the battle, typically. Um, you might have a, a post-credit or a, you know, epilogue kind of a thing, but you're getting close to the resolution, but it's happening now. In other words, the end of the story is the end of all that. So all this to say that when you get close to the end of any story, this is when the tension is the highest, okay? Um, some of you saw the Harry Potter movies or read the books. The last book, which interesting enough was a seven book series, they split into two parts. So at the last part of the last movie, it's this final apocalyptic battle that goes on. And all of these things that have been talked about and thought through and introduced from the very beginning of the story, now they start to make sense or they start to resolve. 
things start to get revealed, what it all meant all along. But because it doesn't happen equally, in other words, it's not like you have um, things being resolved throughout the story. Throughout a story, tension and complexity are growing, right? And when is the height of this? Right before the end. So I want you to understand that when we get now to the sixth angel blowing his trumpet, the sixth trumpet of this, of the, what we're going to find out are seven, because we probably could have guessed it. If I said to you, you know, there are trumpets, how many? You're going to guess seven. It actually told us back then seven trumpets. Um, so in other words, tension is high. Um, conflict is high. Because resolution is almost here. And nothing I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you from having read it. I mean, I have read it, so I know where we're going, but I want you to hear the context of that, okay? Any questions on any of that? All right, so let's go into now the sixth trumpet. Um, what was that? Not the cynicism. Okay, who would volunteer to read for us verses 13 through 21? Maria, you looked up first. Okay. Trumpet six, woe to the plagues. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number, <clears throat> excuse me, of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which was neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immor immorality or their thefts. Wow. <laughs> wow is right. Yeah. Lots of conflict. <laughs> Oh, my. Death and destruction. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, we had creatures before that were like a different creature. Do you remember that from the previous section? I think these free, uh, creatures <coughs> are uglier. Yes. Yeah, so the, the last ones were like locusts, it said. These are like horses. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, let's go back even a little farther than that. Where is this voice coming from that's going to command these creatures? 
Well, actually, it's going to release the four angels. Where does the voice come from? God. Close. Well, then it, Jesus. The Lamb. Go back to 13. Coming from the horns of the golden altar. There we go. Okay. Always remember, we're not going to guess. We're going to look at the text. And somehow, the altar is speaking. Now, we don't know what that means. What we do know, though, is that it's the altar before God. So we had this scene. We had the throne. And there's an altar before the throne, which, by the way, is still the way that our Orthodox churches are set up. You don't see it as much as, as we do serving the altar. But you see the bishop's throne that's outside the iconostos. There's actually one behind the iconostos as well. So in our church, as it's currently laid out, and we actually, we just bought a, a new one last year. Um, we, we used the convention as an excuse. Alan was very kind to me and said, sure, we can buy them for the convention because the church needed them. Um, and there's, an, there's, so there's a throne behind the altar at the church. And that's be, partly because of this. So there's a, there's a there's an altar there. I don't know what it means that, you know, why is the, the voice coming from the altar? What we do know is this is a voice coming from God or his domain. Okay? And somehow it's the altar. What's the altar? The altar is it functions as the place where not, that that's where God is served. In other words, it's <clears throat> where the people of God go to offer their sacrifice, where that sacrifice happens to be. For us, we call it a mercy of peace and a sacrifice of praise. But anyway, it's the altar, so it's before God. And this voice says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. All right, where have we heard Euphrates before? Way back in the other end of this whole book we call the Bible, we heard about the Euphrates. Anybody remember? Think back to Sunday school. One of the four rivers of the garden. Uh, let's see. Oh, my Old Testament over there. Let me go back. Hang on a second. Let me find it here. We'll go back to Genesis 1 or 2, maybe 3. Let's see. Uh, Genesis 2. <clears throat> Genesis 2, chapter, sorry, chapter 2, verses uh, 10. Now, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from it separate into four heads. The name of the first is Pishon, and I'm going to skip a lot of stuff here because it describes them. The name of the second is Gihon. Um, the name of the third is Tigris, and the name of the fourth is Euphrates. Okay, so remember, this is, this is Scripture. So if you've heard this name before, it's always significant. So somehow there's a connection of way back in the beginning of creation, one of these, Euphra one of these rivers, the Euphrates, is where these angels had been bound, and now they're released. When were they released? What was the moment? How was it, how was it characterized? Look in verse 15. 
Oh, it's in chapter two. I couldn't find it. It's in chapter two, isn't oh, it? I say, I'm sorry, did I say three? Yes. Yeah, chapter two, sorry. Okay. All right, so back to Revelation and verse 15. Was this releasing of the angels a last minute decision? No. Not at all, right? So what we're going to see happen is not last minute. It's not a response. This is God's plan unfolding, his plan for a long time. And if you want to make the association with the river Euphrates, this was his plan from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay. And these angels are released when? At the same hour, day, month, and year that they had been appointed. And here's the hard part, to kill a third of mankind. <clears throat> which you talked a lot about. That's, that's a whole lot. It's not everybody. It's a whole lot. And then he gives this number, the, the Calvary. Sorry, Cavalry. <laughs> I'll get those two words confused. The number of the Cavalry. My, my version says twice 10,000 times 10,000. I think yours said twice a million or two million. 200 million. 200 million. There we go. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot. But but the foot the footnote says um, the number two hundred million makes it unlikely, and any earthly army is in view, as with the locusts, another infernal demonic host is probably envisioned. Yeah, and this is the hard part to see: are which side are these on? And, and you'll see in the commentary, there's different ideas about that because they're being released, but they're, even though we, we're not really clear whose side they're on, they're released at the behest of the voice from the altar. In other words, all is happening under God's control. Okay. Um, let's get to some of that commentary. <laughs> How did they know about hyacinths blue? Did they have hyacinths flower, blue flowers back then? They must have. Yeah. I can see the red fire and the yellow sulfur, but the blue flowers kind of surprised me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm trying to find it. Where is that? Oh, mine says sapphire and sulfur. Did you say hyacinth and sulfur? Mine, uh, I'm using the uh, Orthodox Study Bible. It says uh, hyacinth blue, the breath yeah. color. It was red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, this hyacinth is the original, it says. Because mine, the translation is sapphire, but there's a footnote that says Greek is hyacinth. All right, so what's going on here? Let's hear what the ancient commentator said. Uh, Taconia says, when it says that the first woe has passed, the trumpet of the sixth angel has sounded, it announces the final preaching, that of the sixth age. There's a lot of other commentary I'm not going to get into that talk about this, that there are different ages. And the sixth age, meaning the second to last one, which we often describe as the age of the church. Let me read you another one that talks about that. Um, here's Caesarius. In the altar that is in the sight of God, we are to understand the church. 
In the time of the last persecution, she will despise the words and commands of the most inhumane of kings and will separate from those who have submitted to him. Uh, another one, B. Certainly the horns of the golden altar are the gospels, which are the preeminent of the church. Uh, there'll be one more. Ecumenius. The divine scripture sometimes represents to us the apostate angel, by which I mean Satan, and those who fell along with him, as having been bound in darkness by eternal chains. At other times, it represents him as having been condemned to the depths of the sea. For his In his second letter, Peter says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, and to the pits of gloom, to be held for judgment. And in his letter, Jude said, The angels that did not keep their own rule, but left their proper dwelling, he kept in gloom by eternal chains the judgment of the great day. The book of Job, it says, the apostate was cast into the sea, in many ways speaking figuratively of the form, size, and bitterness of his abode, saying also that, quote, the angels of God make sport of him. But there is no tradition among us that they are bound <coughs> the river Euphrates or will ever be loosed, or that people will be punished through them. For when Jude says that they are bound by eternal chains, he excludes the idea that they will ever be released. How, therefore, should someone understand the present claim that they are bound at the river Euphrates, that they'll be released, and they will themselves punish sinners? I think that he's speaking figuratively, as is customary in visions. I think he means to say that the angels are bound to the vision of God, which gladdens the soul. For that which is divine is figuratively called a river by Isaiah. Behold, I extend peace to them like a river, and wealth of nations like an overflowing stream. And in section 22 of the Gospel of John, the Lord himself speaks to the Holy Spirit. He who believes in me as the Spirit says, as the Scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from his belly. So, again, all different kinds of ideas, which means we don't really know precisely. And the fact they say, I think, they'll say, well, I think is this. Here's Andrew Caesarea. I think that these angels are the most evil the demons who are bound to the coming of Christ and who, according to divine command that comes from the heavenly altar, whose image was the ancient tabernacle, will be loosed by a divine angel so that they might trouble the nations. They will fight not only against the Christians, but also against each other, so that while some, like ripe wheat, may be made manifest as approved and faithful and worthy of the best rewards and of the highest mansions and dwelling, others, like chaff, namely the wicked and the gross sinners and those unrepentant, might be here justly punished but received the judgment and even harsher condemnation. And he goes on from there. So it's really not clear um, who are these. What is clear is that all of this is happening under the power and authority of God. Even if it's loosing uh, demonic powers, it's happening at the, um, the permission of God who looses them, because this voice comes from the altar. Um, getting on to this twice 10,000 times 10,000. A couple of comments on that. One says, he uses again different ways to suggest the whole body of evil persons. Just as though the perfection... Uh, let's see, we'll go back a little bit. Yeah, in this translation, somehow they calculate as 80,000. I'm not sure where they got that. Um, Says here he says 80,000, just as though the perfection of the number six, he signifies for us the form of 60 good people. 
that were made, there were 60 queens. And I'm not sure where he's quoting that from. 80 arises now, which is fourfold. So they're all going to give us different ideas. Again, nobody really knows for sure. What do we know? This is a big number. The number no man could number. Yeah, although there's a number. That's the weird part. <laughs> it's a big number, but it's not innumerable. It's even, even though it's hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine. Uh, what do we say? Um, 10,000 times 10,000. It's hard to imagine that, but it is countable. And that's where I think the, 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 what's in common is that this is, a, a, this is not an infinite number, even though it's a big number. Cole, do you want to share something? I can't hear you. Sorry, Father, just picked up my pencil from making notes here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get, right? Well, what does your pencil want to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since I uh, took uh, interrupted here, just to say that um, in time past, when we've studied this passage, um, there are those who are dispensationalist Christians who look at that number of 200 million and say there is only one nation on earth that could feel such an army, and that would, of course, be the kings of the Orient that they are coming to do battle at the Battle of Armageddon. And so, but then again, it, it really doesn't say that. And uh, it's a matter though that it is a huge host, but not innumerable, as you said, Father. So when they go out, I mean, think about what it would take to destroy a third of humankind off the face of the earth. And uh, I like your interpretation, which says they are probably demonic hordes. Because who can stand against them? Well, that's the impression, right? And that, the impression right. is always, it looks hopeless. Yep. And we're going to see as, as the book progresses here that nothing is really hopeless. Although for a long time, it looks like, again, we're in part six of the seventh and final chapter not of the book, but of the story and how it's unfolding. Um, it's the seventh seal of this revelation that's going to tell us everything. Um, so it's towards the end, and it looks really bad. And always think about stories. Unless it looks really bad until the sixth part of the seventh chapter, it's not a good story, right? When things resolve early on, you get bored. It's always a, a difficult thing these days, especially for, for writers, you know, television shows get funded by people coming back to watch you can get them to watch it one time and they don't come back it's not going to get renewed why because it's all based on viewership to which they can sell advertisers so here you have writers who want to write a story and you have audiences that get invested in the characters and what happens um, almost inevitably especially when you have a potential love interest. You'll have this sort of tension between two characters. And everybody says, oh, I want them to get together. I want them to get together. And people have their writing campaigns. And as soon as, you ha ha as, soon as that happens, that everybody asked for, what happens? Viewership goes down. Because there's something about that happening towards the end of the story that makes the story interesting to us as humans. I can't explain it to you. I can just tell you that that's how 
literature works. It's how television works. It's how every, uh, how storytelling works. When the story gets resolved, it doesn't matter if the author wants to tell 10 more chapters, people tune out, they close the book, they're done. So it's just, it's how, it's how literature works for us. Read you a couple other interpretations here. That's so funny, Carly. <laughs> oh, nothing. We were just talking about anticipation, build up, and everything like that during the uh, during the quarantine here. Um, I've gotten so desperate. I started I started watching train videos, waiting for a train to come around the corner. <laughs> that's the highlight. That's the highlight of the video is when the train comes. <laughs> And she was just reminding me of that. Yeah. Imagine That's when the train comes to the end of the video and you got two hours left. <laughs> I can't imagine him sitting through that. Carolyn, can you? I can't either. Uh, let's see. Let's go back to Andrew Caesarea. We hear from him a lot. I think that these horses are either men who, like beasts, lust after women, or there are those who submitted to demons and are ruled by them. For those who sit upon others are those who, are, who also govern them. It is common for these to use not only each other as servants, but also to use evil people as instruments for plotting against people of similar kind. We interpret the breastplates of fire and of smoke and of sulfur to signify the aerial nature of the evil demons and of their destructive work, that the heads of lions show their murderous and beastly nature. Here's Andrew's take. Let's see. Have they ever written a movie from Revelations? I mean, this, one of these movies, like Jurassic Park or anything like that, they got enough stuff in here to do a real, real good movie. They have, and that's the problem. Because if you're going to show this like a movie, how are you going to portray it? What are you going to show? Like, let's say these horses. How are you going to depict them? Just the way it says in here. You're going to do it literally. With the head of a lion. Right. Okay. And that's where almost everybody misinterprets Revelation. Because when you're reading it, it says there are these creatures that are like something. Okay. Now, if you go from being like something to being that thing, you've already changed the story. And so most, mis most misinterpretations of Revelation are people who are only going to look at it literally. They're going to ignore the context of the writing. They're going to ignore how literature works in general. In other words, this is Revelation, which John, who's an evangelist, who's already written his gospel, already written his pastoral letters, now he's towards the end of his time, and he's being given a revelation that we are being, as we unfold this, place that occurrence, even his revelation, at the end of the end. But when you film the movie, you don't always include all of those ideas. You can't, you can't, that doesn't show up in the movie. Um, so this is where, and whether it's the Left Behind movies or other movies, I haven't seen them, but you're always, they're always going to get it wrong because they don't know the context. They don't know the content. 
because they're trying to portray it. And just by virtue of trying to make it into a movie, you've got it wrong. Because you have to show something that was given to you in a written form. And somebody said that, here's John who says, an angel came to me to reveal this to me. And now I'm going to write it down and I'm going to send it to you. And the only part that's the, the, the clearest part of all of this, what, what's been the clearest chapter of all the chapters? Maybe you want to flip back and look. What's the one that was the most clear one to go, this is what it says, this is what it means? Chapter one. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It's, it's, chap it's not chapter one, but it's close. <laughs> You're very close. Seal one. Is it steel one? Let's go back. Chapter what six. chapter is that? Six. Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, the first, yeah. So we already have rice, right, horses, riders. And we, if you remember, I, we weren't sure exactly who they were. We, we made some interpretations. So that's even not really all that clear. So we go back farther. Further than the seals which by the way are seals of a scroll that has not been opened. So you already get the idea of mystery. Anybody want to take it? Not the animal. <laughs> that wasn't clear, right? <laughs> Go back farther. Chapter one is that figure that we have identified as Christ, a lot of symbolism, a lot of interpretation. Father, I'm going to vote for chapter four. Let's see. Chapter four. So it's a vision. So already we're in risky territory. <laughs> um, Come up hither and I will show you what's take place. There's a throne, seated on the throne, and one who appeared like, so already in more dangerous territory. All right, what does it mean that it was like Jasper and Carnelian? But I, I would, if, if my winning vote <laughs> wasn't going to trump yours, I would go with yours. You're getting closer, though. Clearest, most, uh, least interpretation needed. I'll give it away. Yeah, is it five? Chapter two. Chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks with the seven golden lampstands, which he's already told us what those were, says the following. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know this, I know this, but this I have against you. In other words, the letters for the seven churches are the most clear, um, not needing interpretation, straight out, some symbolism, but mostly very literal. You're doing this wrong. I want you to do this. Now, at the time, 
those audiences would have known exactly their situation. So we, we don't know exactly because we're not in the church of Ephesus 2000 years ago. But if somebody says to us, I know you're enduring patiently, keep bearing up for your namesake. You've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You abandon the love you had at first. We don't have to guess a whole lot. Somehow there was a love, it was greater, and now it's not there as much. So all that to say, as we flip back to chapter 9, that's the part of the story that if you wanted to make a movie out of, is the easiest, but it's not the most exciting. Well, in chapter 2, 10 and 11, might be the simplest thing to understand of the whole book. We'll go back. Do not fear any of these thing of those things which you are about to suffer. That's it. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulations 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Yeah, which we haven't heard about what it is yet. What do we know? And I would say you're right. I think if, if you had to say, if you were to ask me what's, what one verse describes the whole book best, that's it. And that's the most clear. Now, how they're going to suffer, what kind of creatures, what are the creatures, that part we're, we're, we're guessing in a lot of cases. But a lot of things, the things that we guess at aren't the important questions. All right? Are these uh, good creatures or bad creatures? We're not answering that. There's lots of different ideas. What we know is that all this is happening under the power of God, which chapter 2, verse 10 gets to, that you're going to have to suffer, but hold on to the end, because that's when you're going to receive your reward. So all that to say, going back to the, the original point I want to make, it's really hard to say this is what's happening, this is what it means in, in a literal sense. But by what you read, we know exactly what it means. Hold on, because it's gonna be really hard, you're gonna suffer, but at the very end, you're not gonna hurt, it didn't say you're not gonna hurt by the first death. And he hasn't defined for us yet what that is. You're not gonna hurt by the second death, okay? Even though we haven't even gotten to it yet. If there are two deaths, and you can only be saved from one of them without knowing anything else which one are you going to pick 100 times out of 100 that's the death i want to be saved from first that's or second. The second one the why? second one why because that's the the final the final judgment i mean we're all going to die physically die but it's the second one that counts yeah and even if we didn't know one was physical if there are two deaths, and we don't know what they are, if you knew nothing else about them, and I said to you, you're going to survive one, you're not going to survive the other one, you're all going to tell me the second one. Why? Because it comes after the first one. In other words, if you survive the first one, or you don't survive the first one, but you get to the second one, but you survive that one, that's the one that counts, because that's the one that goes forward. Mm -hmm. All right? There's some kind of death. There's another kind of death. We don't know what they are. And I say to you, you're not going to survive one of them. Pick one. You're going to tell me, okay, the second one. 
Why? Because something goes on from there. If you die the second death and there's no more story about it, that's it. End of story. But if you die the first, whatever that means, not sure, but you keep going to the second and you live that one, now you're in good shape. So that's, again, I want to remind you of all these things that you don't need interpretation for, just sort of thinking about it logically. You go, okay, if there are two, I don't want to be hurt by that one. And that was back in chapter two. And we haven't even been told what the second death is yet. All right. Uh, let's see. It was an important point towards the end. I want to make sure we didn't miss. Uh, what was that? Verse 20, the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot either see or hear a walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or their thefts. In other words, we know that there's a, a, a death by the first third. The second two thirds, the rest of mankind who are not killed, they didn't repent. What does that apply about the first third? That they must have repented. Yeah, or at least may have. We don't know. Mm -hmm. What we do know is why these saying that the second two thirds didn't, not being told the first might mean that there's repentance there. And this is where some of the commentators will say that those that are dying under these plagues are those of the faithful. They're being... In other words, they're being subjected to, to uh, torture and destruction and even some kind of death. Um, but it's the others who didn't repent. And again, it's not telling us where the first did, but there may. Yeah. It could relate to the um, thief, um, the, I guess the good thief who asked to be um, remembered when Christ comes into his kingdom. And the rest that lived after that didn't take his death seriously. Right. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a great point because even though he died, he died on the cross, that death didn't matter. Christ said, this day will be with me in paradise. So again, there, we're getting more and more ideas throughout that what they'll end up calling the first death, or what we would just call death, isn't the one to worry about because even the thief like you're mentioning he died but that day he was with christ in paradise uh let's see let me read a couple commentaries on that um the ones that did not repent Is again Andrew Caesarea. The rest of, man, of humankind who were spared and did not suffer these things 
yet remained unrepentant. They will suffer these same things since they did not keep themselves from idolatries and murders and fornications and thefts and works of magic. It is clear the universal wrath comes from such things as these. These various deceits affect a frenzy in those nations that do not acknowledge the truth and that worship idols and the creature rather than the creator. And this is certainly so among those who confess to know God, but deny him by their works and who wrap themselves up in the form of piety, but deny the power of it. May it be that we display the purity and authenticity of our faith in Christ by deeds that we never hear those terrible words, truly, I say to you, I did not know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Rather, may we hear the blessed invitation, come you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So again, he's going to return us to, don't get locked up in, in ideas of physical suffering and plagues and all that. This is about confessing God, and not just with your mouth, but with, with your works, being true followers of Christ. Any thoughts or questions on the last part of chapter 9 there? Father, in my um, study book, it says that the, uh, the interpretation of the magic arts uh, is the Greek word pharmakia, and it has two implications, magic from the standpoint of black magic, dark magic, um, magic that is obviously against uh, the spirit of God. And then also it's the word that is the base word for where we get pharmacy. And it is also a preoccupation with drugs and, and uh, synthetic types of stimulants and things of that nature. And boy, if there is any one word that could describe uh, a large aspect of our culture today, it would be fascination with the occult and the preoccupation with drugs that alter your state of mind. Yep. So in other words, we, we can see that even though I'm not going to put a timetable on that or how bad it's going to get or if this is just a foreshadowing of what's to come, but isn't it interesting that in the ninth chapter of Revelation, written by St. John, the theologian, uh, he actually uses a word that could apply to our society. Yep. And, and that's, again, I'll, I'll make the point I made before, this will always apply. So we actually go to places called pharmacies, so we have a little easier to say, oh, this applies to us. But if you were in the Roman Empire in the first century, you might have gone to the what is he, the apothecary, what's his name? The, I forget the, the there's one at, at uh, Williamsburg. The apothecary, am I saying it right? Yeah, okay. Um, you might also just go and um, we know that wine, the drinking of wine, was just a basic part of Roman society. And in its moderation, not a problem. It's a safe drink. It's uh, good for the body. It does all kinds of good things. It's cleansing nature. Um, but taken to excess, it does the same thing what you're talking about, altering our states of mind. And we know that there were uh, cultic worship in, in the Roman Empire and in other, other um, areas, that their worship was surrounded with basically would be a drunken orgy. So the idea of changing the mind and, and this altered state, and whereas 
John is going to con continue a whole scripture to call us always back to be sober. See clearly what's going on because it's going to be very easy to be tricked. And if you're not sober and you're not looking clearly, you might, you might fall under, you might give up your clarity. In other words, it's not, you're not getting tricked. You're giving up your clarity, which allows you to be tricked. So it's always, the scripture is always going to put the onus on us for the clarity and the so sobriety to see what's really going on. It's just interesting to me that um, he is depicting, the writer here is depicting the fact that this is the mindset of those who choose not to obey God. Even after they see all of the things that have happened, they still harden their hearts. And so if, it it's, gonna ha if it's going to happen then, and it is happening now, just as it did in the times of the Romans, you get to begin to see, uh, you know, what godless behavior really looks like, whether it's in Roman culture times, our times, or times yet to come. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking whether we should talk about this, and I think I'll introduce the topic now, because um, we've already begun to hear, and we're going to hear about it more in the coming weeks, um, are we being disobedient to God by obeying a an earthly leader, a governor or a president or a mayor, who says there should be no gathering in the churches. There are those who already, and even among the Orthodox, there's fewer, but there are some that say that those who follow those restrictions are falling into the trap that Revelation is trying to guard against. So let's, let's apply all our learning and let's wrestle with this one. Are we falling into um, the trap and are we transferring our allegiance from God to earthly powers if we stay home and don't go to church during a pandemic? What, let's put it this way, let's, let's argue both sides. What would argue that, to say that that's actually happening, that we are acting out of, a, a, of not a fear of God, but we're, we're putting our allegiance on, human, on humans. What would argue for that? It, it sort of makes me think of the coin that Christ pulled out of the mouth of a fish and said, whose picture is on this? And that's who, go ahead and pay him what is due him. Well, you're making but, the other argument. We'll get there. <laughs> but, I right. don't want, but, but I don't believe in that in, the, in this case. <laughs> I, I just really felt, for the first time in my life, I just really felt like when they were shutting down the churches that I was willing to, to do civil disobedience to show up in my church. Okay. So let, we'll, we'll, make, we'll make the other argument... All right, so that's, that argues for this point of view. So in other words, if the governor says don't go to church and we go, we're disobeying God and we're obeying the governor. Is it true? Well, in that sense, yes. On another, I don't know, I just feel like no one has the authority to keep me away from my Lord. True. What were you going to say, Alan? Um. 
I've forgotten now. I, I just don't, I don't think we're being disobedient to God. I think um, God has given us the opportunity to participate in church through these technology things, although we're not able to receive the Eucharist, mm-hmm. at least able to be in the presence of God, although we may be in our own home. Um, and we try to make our home um, a little church uh, that we uh, praise the Lord in. So I, I think he's given us the opportunity and he, he gave us the free will and the ability to make decisions and not be um, lax about the things that we, we do, not to be stupid about the decisions we make. Right. But I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I don't feel that I have offended God. Okay, and we'll get there. So I want to argue the first point first. Father, isn't it like when the people had to go into the catacombs to worship? Yeah, you're all jumping to that argument. We've got to make that argument first. <laughs> the argument is we've been obedient thus far to, yeah. because we care about people not getting sick. But I will tell you, if this goes on much longer, I'm going to be disobedient to the civil authorities. You know how I feel about it. I know. I'm coming back. So we got, we got to make the other argument as best we can so we know that it's not going to be the correct one. Um, we just heard the gospel last Sunday of the uh, of Christ with the Samaritan woman. Now, for those that would say, if the government says, I can't go to the church, they're keeping me from God, what do we hear in that conversation that would argue against that? Where does Christ tell the woman that we worship God? They worship God in spirit and truth, so it's in your own, within your own soul. You worship God. Yeah, because she, she brings up this theological argument of where, where you should worship God, whether on their mountain there in Samaria or in Jerusalem. And Jesus answers, the time has come. Those who worship God will spirit worship in spirit and truth. Now, that does not argue to say it's unimportant to come to the church when we, we can. What it does say is nobody who tells us you can't come to church stops us from worshiping God. Why? Because we worship him in spirit and truth, not in a certain place. Okay? Any other arguments before we get to the other, uh, other side that would say, if the government says, I can't go to church, they, they are, and if we listen to them, we're disobeying God. All right, so let's make the other argument. Why did we not go to church? Was it because the governor said so? We didn't go to try and protect other, protect each other out of love. Okay. Part of it. Why else did we not come? Because the bishop told us not to. Yeah. Yeah, so we're being obedient to yeah. our bishop and metropolitan. I know that. And we have to be obedient. Yeah. Why? Because when you're obedient to the bishop, until the bishop... If you want to take the stand that he's a heretic, you can do that. It's very risky territory. But <laughs> aside from that, being obedient to the bishop is being obedient to God. Even when the bishop says, 
don't go to liturgy this week or this month or for two months. Okay. And this is where I'll even tell you some of my brother clergy are really struggling with this because they, they, they sort of have a foot in both camps to say that the governor can't tell us not to go to church. And I keep saying, that's not why we're not going. We're going because the bishop said don't go. Mm -hmm. Now, you can decide the bishop's wrong. And again, that's the riskiest territory of all. And Revelation is going to make it extremely clear to us that you have three options on which side you're going to be on. You can be on the side of God. And if you are, you're going to suffer a lot. It's going to appear like you are defeated a lot. Um, and not until the end is it going to be known that you are on the winning side. Then there's being on the side of the devil or on the evil one or of, of the, the ones that are arrayed against God. And what do we know about them? That until the very end, they're going to look victorious. They're going to look um, uh, completely powerful, that it's hopeless to, to go against them. But there's one more place, and we, we heard it in the last section here, and that is those who say they're on the side of God, but by their actions show that they're not. So, and this is where, again, if you want to go against the bishop, I would say you're in that third category. You're saying, well, I'm on the side of God, but I, the bishop doesn't know what he's talking about. So I should go to church, and he better figure this out. Other or, to make it a little closer to home for all of us, if the bishop says communion is only going to be given by a single spoon, we're not going to rotate spoons, we're not going to give individual cups, again, everyone's going to make their own choice, we're not going to judge anybody. What I'm going to say is the most, the, the, safe place is to, the safest place, in my view, the bishop said it's okay, I'm going to do it. The next safest play is the bishop said that this is what I can do, but he also said if until I'm ready, I don't have to go to communion. That's up to me. He's not going to force me. He's not going to judge me. It's that third position that puts us in a danger. He said it. I don't want to do it, and I think he's wrong. Now where are we? We're on our own, thinking we're in the church, and yet now we have made ourselves the bishop. Why? Because we're listening to ourselves and not him. So whether you're talking about coronavirus in America or in Michigan in 2020 or revelations on the island of Patmos, uh, it's always going to be that, that you've got to really be careful because it's not going to be clear. And Deborah, I'm not criticizing you. I'm glad you brought it up because it shows us how it's really hard. You can get close to being on the right side. It's really hard until you keep looking and force yourself to make that final decision, which you're the one that said it. I'll obey the bishop, mm -hmm. right? So you ended up in the right place. It's when we don't end up in the right place that we're really in trouble. Well, Again, I guess I sort of thought of the early Christians who stood up to, to the authorities. Not that I was, I didn't think that I would be martyred, but I just felt like, I was thinking from that that camp, not yeah. not that I did I didn't want to disobey the the bishop at all. Right, I've heard the but same thing like, from priests. Yeah, they yes. say they stood up when, then. Why aren't we standing up now? Right, that's that's how I felt. So here's my answer: 
if Governor Whitmer says people going to church aren't allowed to go because Jesus Christ is not God. Well, then we'd all show up. <laughs> we better. We may not, but we better. But is that what's going on? No. She no. hasn't said that. Right. No. So, but that's where, again, you, you can be, and I'm, I'm using my brother Priest as an example because these are folks who spent three years in seminary. This is their life. They think about this day in, day out. They go to bed thinking about it. Uh, it keeps them up at night. So it's, it's not like, oh, it's just for people who don't know what's going on. It's that hard to make sure you stay with the right side. And how do you do it? You do it by following whom? The, the bishop, the priest, the right. bishop. Okay. Who do what? Who serve the lamb who was mortally wounded? In other words, you're, you're willing to lose your physical life because you, if you're going to, again, you're going to pick which death you're going to survive. You want to survive the second one. So if I'm going to die, if, if the governor says you can't go because I, I outlaw Christianity, we go. We die, and it's hard, but we go like the martyrs joyfully because we know what's awaiting us, which we haven't heard yet. So we haven't got to chapter 2021 yet. But <laughs> believe me when I tell you, it's all worth it. That's how this story ends. I'm giving away the ending, but you knew it anyway. It's all worth it when you see who wins and what happens to the winners. Mm -hmm. Elaine and Deborah take a drive to Florida. My governor says I can go to church down here. My bishop says I can go to church down here. And the priest here gives me communion. So come on down. I will. <laughs> Don't be surprised if I show up at your door <laughs> with my suitcase. Come home. Who wants to come with me? <laughs> I guess we'll have to drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Road trip. Road trip. <laughs> Any thoughts or questions? What, what else do we have to do, right? Father. Yes. Father. Yes. Father. Yes. Why didn't we start at the end? Why didn't we? <laughs> well, look, look. In one sense, we never get to start at the end, okay? But let's go back to the beginning. And what we saw way back, I think in chapter one. Yeah. I want to say it now because it's going to be, it's going to be um, important for us next week. Um, yeah, chapter one, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice of one speaking to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe, golden girdle around his breast. His head and hair were white as wool. So that image, which we talked about, was the, the, the Christ of power, not the Christ on the cross. Uh, it's the Christ of Mount Tabor, having been transfigured and shown to be white as, as the sun and white as snow. That Christ, from the very beginning, we were given the vision at the beginning. He's the powerful one, all right? Um, what else do we see about him? He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I thought that was mine. So, in a sense, we did. We saw the end at the beginning. 
But then what we have to see is that as the story progresses, it's good to remember the beginning because you got this revelation, but then it's not, you're not going to see that all the time. You're going to see death and destruction and temptation and heresy and all kinds of things. You're going to see that, but hang on, keep reading. Keep uh, the, the verse that Alan read, you know, be faithful to the end. And then you're going to see what happens at the end where that figure, we're going to see him again. Actually, we're going to see him very soon. Maybe next week. <laughs> okay, I'll stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right, everybody. Alan has to get off. We're all going to get off, too. Okay. God bless you all. Good to see Is you. your mother still here? Yeah, she finally, she, we, we gave in, we let her buy a ticket. She's going back first week of June. Okay. But we're going to try to get her back soon. Yeah. You had a house full. <laughs> it's been fun. You've been eating well. <laughs> yes. And that, therefore, having to exercise well. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank you. God bless. Stay well. You too.